looking at 1 Timothy still and this particular section you might like to have open because we'll be coming backwards and forwards through that. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 to 17 is where we'll be today, a, a glorious part of God's word uh, where we'll see the grace of God to Paul. Uh, 1, 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. Let's ask the Lord to open that to us. Lord, please uh, show us from your scripture the truth that's in there and let it be something that implants itself in our hearts and, and works to grow within us and change us and, and uh, leads us to be saved to the uttermost. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So most of us have a few enemies, don't we? We might have an opponent or two. Uh, we might have someone who just seems consistently that they're against us. And we'd really like them to stop it, wouldn't we? And we're running out of patience with them. And the worse they are to us, the more we just want to give them a good slapping. Well, it's no secret, really, that persecution of people who believe in Jesus all across the world is just gradually amping up steadily, just getting more and more of it because Christians seem to have enemies wherever they are. And we'd really like that to stop. That's what we would like to do. And we're definitely out of patience with our enemies. But think about this. The church is God's bride. And every time a Christian is persecuted, Jesus feels it. And he feels it deeply. It's still unfathomable to me the capacity of God to be able to know and to feel every persecuted Christian's pain. But Jesus, God, is doing that. He's absorbing that pain. And he's sending his Holy Spirit to be with Christians who are being persecuted. And it stimulates other Christians to care for persecuted brethren. And he holds fast to his master plan in, in the face of that persecution. And when we see it, we want to know why is it going on? Why doesn't God just stop it? Is he too weak to do that? Because if it was up to us, we just want it to stop. Because... We don't like pain, do we? But God has a plan. He has a plan not just for persecuted believers, but think about this. He has a plan for those who are doing the persecuting. That's right. He's loving the baddies as well as the goodies. And 2 Peter 3.9 reminds us, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Those who persecute and those who are being persecuted. And in today's section of 1 Timothy, those verses 
chapter 1, verses 12 to 17, we're going to get some insight into the magnificent plan that God has for both the goodies and the baddies. And it's so far above human nature that when Paul's laid it out, he just bursts into the song at the greatness of God and his plan. And he sings that doxology in verse 17 there. It says, Now to the King eternal and immortal and invisible, the only God, to him be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, the way God chooses to do things, God's plan deserves our praise and worship just like this. Because it's only when we truly accept the greatness of his way of doing things and when we can give honour and glory to him who is doing it, who is eternal and is immortal and invisible and the only God, and then we can make sense of what is so much cruelty to believers. And we're going to see an example. We're going to see that laid out in the life of Paul. We're going to see it's a pattern there of the way God works with us, works with humankind, works with people. And Paul wants to see that what happened to him is a pattern. So let's look at verse 16 there in 1 Timothy 1. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience. It says it's as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So what we see in Paul's life today is an example for us. And although we are sort of unique and we have our own pathway to faith in Jesus, still there's going to be big aspects of that which will speak to us. So we've got to ask this first question. Who is Saul of Tarsus? Saul of Tarsus. Good question. He's going to be a model for us to look at, an example today. And we find he is a model of religiosity. He is a very religious, very fine, upstanding Jewish citizen. If you're looking for the best and the most upstanding citizen in the community, then come along, let's take a look. Here is Saul. In Acts chapter 23, second half of verse 6, he says there, he says, My brothers, I am a Pharisee and I am descended from Pharisees. He's got the bloodline. A Pharisee and descended from Pharisees and then one of the things that they believe in, they hope in the resurrection of the dead. And who were, the, who were these Pharisees? They were a very influential mob of religious people during the time of Christ. They were known for being very pious. You mean that? That means holy. I mean, they were. They didn't. Uh, they didn't throw coarse language and jesting around. They were determined to be looking like good people. And what they had was a, an oral tradition, you know, the spoken tradition, in addition to what they had written down in the Torah. And they taught things like that the Jews should observe all of the, how many laws in the Torah? The 600 plus, observe 600 rules and all the rituals concerning ceremonial purification. They're pretty uh, serious about their religion. And they were mostly middle class businessmen and, and they're often leaders of synagogues. And although they were a minority in the parliament of the day, the Sanhedrin, they did have a uh, a decision-making power, you know, because they had the 
the appeal of the people. They were supported by the people. So they accepted the written word. Yeah, God inspired the, the Bible. Uh, and that's what we would call the Old Testament, the Torah. But, but they also gave equal uh, tradition, uh, equal authority to that spoken tradition. Because they this thing that we've been, it's been passed down has come all the way from Moses. And uh, that's a bit unfortunate, unfortunately. The Gospels abound with examples of them treating their traditions as equal to the Word of God. And nevertheless, he was a Pharisee, descendant of Pharisees, so he had the best possible bloodline. He had the best zeal and energy for his beliefs. And let's look at what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, if uh, someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. What was I? I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And in regard to the law, a Pharisee. And as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Think about that. 600 laws kept all the way through his life, faultless. And so far, this guy Saul is looking good. He's the sort of model citizen that you'd like to have on your side. Maybe the only problem might be he's a bit too squeaky clean, you know, a bit too fanatical to have as a real friend. Never lets his hair down. He's always on his game. Good acquaintance, though and a very influential buddy. Well, have you ever gone off to Bunnings, bought a fruit tree and come home, bought a few of them, come home and all the labels fell off and you didn't know what they were? And you have to wait to spring, see what they are? Well, we're going to see with Saul. Now, he's got all that. We've brought him home from Bunnings. His label's fallen off. What are we going to get out of that? What sort of tree is he going to be? And we're going to go to the book of Acts now and see that fruit that comes from his tree. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and he put them in prison. And meanwhile, in Acts 9, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, that means before they were called Christians, people who believed in Jesus were called followers of the way. So if he found anyone who was a follower of the way, whether men or women, he could take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 22, verse 4, he's speaking himself. He says, look, guys, I persecuted the followers of the way to their death. Arrested both men and women, throwing them into prison. And then Acts 22, And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval. Yeah, yeah, good. And I guarded the clothes of those who were killing him. And now you see the fruit. The label is now identified. Saul was anti-Christian, intensely anti-Christian, violently anti-Christian. And he admits it in our passage in 1 Timothy, verse 13 there. Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. And that blasphemer there is not just about swearing, taking the Lord's name in vain. It's really about being anti-God. 
It's about being anti-Jesus. Saul was against Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, so he was a blasphemer. And as I thought about that, I thought, wow, how sad for those Christians who suffered at Saul's hand then. And I'm sad it will not be until Christ comes to judge the living and the dead that the persecutors will get their just rewards and the persecuted will be healed. And I'm sad that I live in a fallen world because it can be really tough. But I know I'm going to appreciate the heck out of heaven because of it. But I'm not going to blame God for the persecution because he didn't do it. I'm genuinely going to praise our Lord because he found a way to clean up the mess that Adam and Eve started, which causes the persecution. And I'm going to worship the one who didn't leave us alone in the mess, but stays with us every step of the way and takes it all personally. What's that? People are getting persecuted? Jesus is taking that personally. Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 3 and 4. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Not, why do you persecute the church? Why do you persecute me? Yes, Jesus considers that when people are persecuting his children, they're persecuting him. And we go on that Acts 9 section there. Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. He says, I am Jesus. I am Jesus who you are persecuting. I don't know about you, but I find that comforting, that Jesus feels the persecution. He feels your persecution. And whenever people are giving you curry for being a Jesus person, he's right there with you. He's feeling it. And he's hearing it with you. And you're not alone in it. And then is revealed the greatness of God. For Saul, who at this point is a persecutor, it's revealed God still loves him and wants to pluck him out of being the persecutor, wants to pluck him out of his worldview, out of his heritage, and save him from this very broken thinking, which makes him a persecutor. God saves Paul the persecutor. And we see that in our passage, verse 15 there, 1 Timothy 1. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save persecutors like me, he's saying. To save sinners of whom I am the worst. And it's all crystallised into that short phrase, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You see, he didn't come to give us inspiring messages for daily living. He didn't come to give us a good example of how to live. He didn't come to tell us parables so that we could connect with the hidden mysteries of life. He didn't come to make us wealthy. He didn't come to make us healthy and wise. He came to pluck us out of our life experiences, to pluck us out of our worldviews, out of our mindsets, out of our attitudes and save us. He came to rescue us from a fallen world. And give us a place in his eternal family, his eternal kingdom. He came to save us. Now most businesses don't employ people to work for them 
who have dubious resumes, do they? They don't want damaged people. They don't want people with criminal records. They don't want people who couldn't get on with their fellow employers in the last job. They don't want people who rebelled against their last, their last bosses, do they? So can you imagine Saul coming in, here's my resume to be the first missionary to the non-Jewish world. And the interviewer might say, well, if you could just summarise your background into three main points, uh, what would they be? And he says, oh, okay, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor and a violent person. And the King James Version, you might have this as an insolent person. And yet that's a person so wrapped up in their belief system that they can do unthinkable things to others. The Nazis, for example, were wrapped up in their belief system and did dreadful things to the Jews. Pol Pot was wrapped up in his belief system and did terrible things to the Cambodians, and so on. And if Saul says that, and you're on the panel, you would say, hmm, uh, uh, yeah, okay, um, well, thanks very much, we'll be in touch. But not Jesus. He's not concerned about the negatives in Saul's resume, is he? And I believe that's what Paul's trying to point out, that as far as his resume was to be a Christian worker, it was the worst it could possibly be. I mean, there's some similarities to current Australia. Sadly, we have political lobby groups trying to change the laws so that people with the worst resumes can be employed by Christian organisations. Non-believers want to work in Christian schools. Except... The difference is they don't want to do the change that Saul did. They don't want to change. And so when Paul is saying to us in 1 Timothy, look at my example, look at what Jesus has done by taking someone who is so strongly anti-Christian and turning his life around, God is showing through the example of my life, says Paul, that he has immense patience towards those who don't yet believe. And he can save anyone even the most violent opponents. And I don't know about you, but I think that should encourage us to keep praying for our friends because Jesus can take even that friend of yours who seems so strongly anti-Christian and turn him or her around because he did it with Saul. He was turned around, his name was changed to Paul. So keep be encouraged, keep praying. God is patient. He hasn't given up on your anti-Christian friend. Now, Jesus doesn't just save Saul to make him a member of the club. You know, you've got those pictures of the men's club in your back, in your mind, they come in and they sit down with the port and cigars and tune out the world and read the paper. That's not what he came to do, to make Saul a member of a club. What did he come to do? And we look in the book of Acts to see what the call was. The Lord said to Ananias, uh, this man, that's talking about Saul, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. God had great plans for, for Paul as he has great plans for all of us. He gives us spiritual gifts. He gives us talents. He gives us abilities for a wonderful enterprise of saving people. I don't know whether you've thought about what it was that Jesus saw in Paul. 
you know, the, this guy Paul actually ended up being probably the most influential Christian in the history of the world for non-Jewish people, isn't he? I think he looked into his life and he saw determination. And I think he saw persistence. Because you see, before Paul had met Jesus, he was living a very devoted life, devoted to what he believed was true. He was even travelling to other countries to try and to stamp out a heresy which he thought was threatening his Jewish faith. And he was a zealot, he was passionate, a passionate advocate for the God he knew. And he was entirely sincere and he was entirely wrong. Entirely sincere and he was entirely wrong. And that's why really understanding God's word, the Bible, is so really important because it's possible to be doing your best. It's possible to be passionately defending the truth you believe in and yet be entirely wrong like Saul was. And my prayer, and I think you could. this is a great prayer to pray, is to pray that God will do for the current political lobbyists what he did for Saul. You know, the current people who are advocately, passionately anti-Jesus and are violent for their politically correct lifestyle choice, gender-confused beliefs. Let's pray for these guys that Jesus will arrest many of these who are leaders at the moment in something which is wrong and turn them around to building the kingdom of God. That's a worthy thing to pray for. And Paul was determined. He was a persistent guy. And that meant that Jesus knew he'd be able to cope with what was an immense amount of opposition because Jesus knew it was coming and Jesus felt that because he'd endured it himself first on the cross. Think about some of the things that Paul had to go on and endure. We'll see this list in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Are they servants of, of Christ? He's talking about false teachers. He said, well, I'm out of my mind to, to talk like this. But if that's the case, I am more. I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea and I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger. from? I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews in danger from non-Jewish people. I've been in danger in the city. I've been in danger in the country. I've been in danger at sea and in danger from false believers. I've laboured and I've toiled and I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, on top of that, I face the daily pressure of my concern for the churches. Who's weak out there? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Well, I wonder if any of the preachers who preach that Jesus wants you to be healthy, wealthy and wise have ever read about Paul. 
whoever gives an evangelistic sermon, come to Jesus and I'll show you how much you must suffer. It's not a very sellable message, is it? But Paul was quite okay with it. What? He was okay with that? Why? Why? Because he had found the most valuable treasure you can ever find, the most amazing gift in the universe, because he had met Jesus. He had an encounter, which blinded him by the way. He had an encounter with the risen Jesus. And that encounter changed everything. It made everything else pale by comparison. It made whatever he'd been doing so far with his life look shabby and dull and lifeless. And he realised he'd been wasting his life up to this point. All his previous efforts, they're just worth writing off. They were to be put down as a loss. We see that in Philippians chapter 3. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider as loss. For what? For the sake of Christ. That's what meeting Jesus does for you. Changes your perspective. Lord, in this moment, let us just take that thought. Meeting Jesus changes everything. Let us see you, please. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things and I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's perspective here is utterly transformed. He saw the reality of Jesus and they became totally sure of the majesty and totally sure of the power, totally sure of the grace totally sure of the mercy of Jesus Christ and of Jesus' capacity to save us from this fallen creation and to grant us eternal life. And his message is, I'm the example of this, guys. This is possible for anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1.16 For those who would Believe in him. Hallelujah. Is that hard? Only to our pride. It's possible through believing. And what happens? You receive eternal life. And so even if you be strongly anti-Christian, it is possible to receive mercy from Jesus because Paul received it. And although you may live in ignorance and unbelief as he did, mercy is still available to all. Look at verse 13 there in 1 Timothy. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. Shown mercy. Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. I was shown mercy. You know how that's possible? It's because of the grace of God. The unmerited favour of God. It's because God decides to show mercy even though the person who's receiving it doesn't deserve it. But to do that, 
to receive the mercy, there has to be a sober assessment, I believe. A sober assessment of where you stand. Because so many people aren't looking for mercy because they don't think they need mercy. They haven't done anything wrong. Like Saul, they're diligently doing everything they believe they need to do in order to be saved. And then others are wanting, God should explain to me why he's not keeping up his end of the bargain. Because they're wanting him to explain why bad stuff happens to good people. And they haven't understood the holiness and the perfection of God. And they haven't understood that the problems are here not because of God. And they haven't got to this important understanding in verse 15 of 1 Timothy there that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And if you can conceive that, if you can conceive that the problems of your life actually may be due to you, if you can conceive that you may not understand all that you need to understand, if you can understand that you actually may need to take responsibility for your life not see yourself as a helpless victim of your family of origin, of your culture. If you can conceive that you may need to evaluate your thinking against God's standards as revealed in the Bible and not just your own good ideas, if you can understand that you might need to listen to the Holy Spirit within talking to you in this moment, right now, and God is here, the Holy Spirit is wrestling with people today. And if you can do that, then you hopefully you'll be able to come to the same realisation that Paul had, that all the things you've been standing on, you say, I feel good because I'm uh, clever or I'm intelligent or I've got resources. If you can come to the realisation that any other thing to stand upon except faith in Jesus is rubbish and should be considered lost, and if you're, then you'll be able to see the immense mercy that God has towards us. You'll be able to see his immense patience with us and that through believing in him we can have eternal life. And if, that, if you get that, then you just can't help but erupt in the praise that Paul did in verse 17 there. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. So let's put it together. Let's read from verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that reason, that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example to those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honour forever and ever. Will you pray with me? Lord, pray that we understand the grace we've received. We understand the mercy which literally saves us when we trust in Jesus alone for our salvation. When we say, Father, please forgive us. 
We are the foremost of sinners. We're trying to do it our way. Help us to see that trusting in anything except what the Lord Jesus has done by dying upon the cross to pay the price for our sins. Help us to feel that and to know that this morning. And let's put our own name into verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I, Mike, John, Mary, am the worst. Thank you.